Welcome to the Be Kind Podcast with your host, Joe Kirkner, presented by the Animal Advocates of South Central Pennsylvania. You guys ready? I guess so. Yep. All right. Once upon a midnight dreary, as I lay there weak and weary, pondering over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, as I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as its own rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Why am I quoting the raven? Because today we're here to talk about birds. Guys aren't saying any bird noises. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you had a whole I, intro I'm just that we were not blown away for. by your like reciting that. <laughs> oh, I got more. I know the whole thing. Really, <laughs> the whole thing. Just it's about pretty long. The actually. end, I get a little lost sometimes. I'm like ninety percent there. At the end, I can stumble through it if I have to. But yeah, basically. Well, I'm impressed, Joe. I me too. But yeah, you you took us by by surprise. With I that. was shocked. I. I was not expecting that. All right. Well, I can leave this in so people can hear our playful banter. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, welcome to the Be Kind Podcast. Like I said, we're here to talk about birds and do another virtual book club review with our friends John and Seth. And today we're talking about, I actually have never actually looked at the bird's title. Book's title. <laughs> the bird's title. <laughs> so I've never, I read the whole book and didn't know the name of it. It's called The Bird Way, A New Look at How Birds Talk, Work, Play, Parent, and Think by Jennifer Ackerman, New York Times bestselling author of The Genius of Birds. She's, she's got one topic. Yep, she does not have a whole lot of variety in her portfolio, to be sure, from the looks of this. Now, I hear there's another follow-up called Birds, They're Cool. <laughs> Is that really what it's called? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as you can imagine, the book is essentially just uh, ode to the amazingness of birds and all the interesting and cool things about them. And we picked this book because the other week we reviewed What a Fish Knows, which essentially was just telling us how amazing fish are. So this kind of seemed like the bird equivalent of it. Agreed, yeah. But it's definitely a much different kind of book than what a fish knows. Uh, also agreed. So, um, yeah, that's what books was about, birds. All these fun <laughs> facts about birds. But it's important to note, it's not about the birds that we are familiar with in the United States or really any European-oriented country. It is primarily focused on really exotic, outlandish birds that are usually in Australia. So if you like birds out there, you better should move to Australia. <laughs> I mean, there's there's some mention of, of birds that we know, crows and ravens, and you know, there's not a lot about bluebirds and cardinals and robins and stuff like that. But there are birds that are in America. All right, but uh, they do not mention chickens or anything like that. Oh, right, though. right. It's it's mostly quote unquote songbirds and not birds that we would eat or farm. So I obviously didn't read the book because I'm stupid. Right. Um, or maybe I'm smart. <laughs> I guess we'll find <laughs> out at the end of this review. But uh, does it talk about like um, how like crows can use tools and stuff like that? There's a lot about Oh, oh yeah. For yeah. about a bajillion pages, yeah, it talks okay. about that. Okay. And that brings us to the next point that I'd like to emphasize with this book our criticism of what a fish knows was he's essentially just rattling off fact after fact after fact after fact after fact after fact after fact is this a factual book yes yes <laughs> <laughs> well see that book 
what a fish knows, he just went from fact to fact really, really quickly all mm-hmm. the time and just didn't really let anything sit and just, did you know this? Did you know this? Right. Here's this. This one will say, did you know crows can use tools? Let me explain for 30 pages this time a crow oh used God. a tool. Yeah. It's, it's, right. uh, it'll, she'll have an example and then, like he said, go on about it for 30 pages and then start talking about the lives of the researchers who did the research and what they had to, their walk through the jungle and... Hmm. Um, it got a bit too much because um, the point was made almost right away. Hmm. So in the, in that respect, the book itself um, was dissatisfying to me. And I, I agree that I wasn't thrilled with either because I would get bored and I would again go, I get it. Crows can use tools or I get it. Ravens learn or I get it. This bird can have a really cool song. But I did like how it was more story based and had a little more narrative to it than the fish book, which essentially, like I said, was just fact after fact. But this one took it to the next extreme where it tried to make its own narrative and story and history off of every single example. And I didn't need to know about the researcher and their research and careers and trials and struggles and family life. And this other time they saw a crow use a tool. And then this time they saw a crow use a tool. By the end of the book, I was similar to the fish book, just powering through to get through it. Yeah, same. And I felt like a happy medium between those two books would be great because I think there's probably a lot that could have been included in this book that just, there, there's not room for a lot. Um, it's like a 350 page book with maybe 10 examples of things oh, in wow. it that um, if less room was devoted to each one, we could have learned a little bit more. Right. And I had serious qualms with the fact only focused on these quote unquote exotic birds that really, no one's out there trying to actively kill penguins and stuff like that. They're really... What the fish book, one of the things we did like about was it talked a lot about common fishes that we know and that are exploited constantly mm-hmm. and that are part of our everyday lives and existence, and which was really cool because it added some value to the animals from a normal human perspective and really gave more characteristics to them and a deeper appreciation for these creatures we often take for granted. This one didn't do that. I went to all the birds we do look at as super exotic and complicated and extravagant that do get on all the nice PETA posters and um, save the wildlife and on license plates and things like that. So, I mean, I don't feel like anyone out there who's really actively trying to hurt penguins is going to be a person to pick up this book and try and all of a sudden be convinced, oh, I had no idea penguins have active sex lives. I will not poach penguins (laughs) now. Right. Well, I think that the the sort of like the goal of this book is different than the fish book. Um, because the, the fi- fishes do get much more heavily exploited than birds. And I think that the, the, the author of what a fish knows was attempting to change the way people saw fish in order to stem the tide of that exploitation. This book doesn't have that as a, 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 a part of its goal in its existence. It's just sort of saying... A matter-of-factly, hey, these animals are smart. <laughs> right, yeah. Although I would like to, to say, the book isn't all complimentary about birds. There's There are some birds that are straight-up nasty mm-hmm. and mean and, oh, yeah. and gross and, and, <laughs> and all kinds <laughs> of interesting stuff. And so the book does attempt to alter our 
our perceptions of birds, sometimes because they're smarter than we thought or more loving than we thought Mm -hmm. or pass along information from generation to generation, and sometimes because they poop on their enemies or they... uh, Who doesn't? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some some birds have sex with the dead bodies of their fellow Uh, bird species. That was weird. Or eat live sheep. Yeah. Well, they don't eat the whole sheep, but they they, they will take bites of the flesh of a living sheep. Bizarre. (laughs) Uh, Now, there's a vegan-related thing, though, because the sheep can't defend themselves because their tails get docked. Mm-hmm. And so the birds will fly up behind the sheep's butt and take bites out of it. The butt, the sheep butt. Um, and if, if this was the natural world, the sheep would have this tail whose actually right. one of its purposes is to swat away animals trying to mess with it. Right. But it can't. And so it actually wow. loses ch- chunks of its butt. But she never really goes into the whole, why don't we just not do this to sheep part? Yeah. I, I looked up to try to figure out if she was vegan or not, and I couldn't find anything. So I'm assuming she's not. Yeah, I, there's there's almost nothing in the book that makes me think of veganism. Although there was one instance of the phrase "non-human animal," which you, you don't see too much mm. outside of vegan circles. So that that was the one time where I was like, "Oh, there's a little something," but it was just once. And you were talking a little bit about the point of the book, and that's something that I kept thinking as I was reading this. It's basically like a nature documentary in book form a lot, where they have all these really close following examples of these extravagant things they go through to find out information and tell us about it. It's almost, I could see it being a documentary quite easily, which brings me to something I was thinking. Is that what we discussed this before we got on the air is, What's the point of knowing this information? Is it really useful stuff to know? Is it really going to convince people to take any real action or changes in their lives? There is a super soft call to action at the end, a stereotypical stop destroying the environment call to action. But they never really go into, well, that can be done through a lot of ways that may go against society's norms like veganism or uh, pescatarianism, sorry, fishes, and things like that. And there's just no real agency to the book or initiative or um, urgency to us. Basically just a nice tour through how amazing birds are. Or how mean they are. Or how mean. <laughs> Amazingly. And that's another gripe that I'm sure we can get into later is <laughs> that we, throughout the book, she anthropomorphizes birds constantly, which is something that I think we talked about with the fishes is where we don't need to understand or apply our human values and emotions and logic to these non-human animals because we can't know why the birds are pooping everywhere, doing all those terrible things. It's just how they are. And it's like trying to it's like trying to tell a blind person how sight works. It doesn't work and it will never work because we've had totally different frames of mind. No, I, I, I hear you um, and I agree to an extent. I, I think there is some use in, in anthropomorphizing to an extent. If, if we can say these animals do things in a way, kind of like we do them, if that serves to alter our basic perceptions of these animals in, in the sense that they have greater agency or they have greater depth of individuality, we don't want to always make humans the, the measuring stick that we measure other animals by, but if by doing so on occasion, 
we can so alter our perceptions of an animal's individuality that it's, it causes a sea change in how multiple people might see them. I think there's value in that. And so I was just looking up this one quote that I did think was interesting because I know when we start talking about animals and how smart they are, one of the things we always start hearing about is tool use. You know, this animal does this with tools, this animal does this. And then the question is, why does that matter? And she was talking in here about, what is it, crows. In one section, uh, with no training or guidance, four crows put together pieces of a tool within five minutes and used the longer pole to reach and extract food, blah, 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 blah. This is truly a staggering accomplishment. Children can't make these sorts of multi-part tools until at least age five. So if we're talking about a crow, an animal you might see on a light pole and not think much about it, especially of being an individual or having independent thought, um, but yet you will, you know, baby your five-year-old child. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on to say, why does tool use matter? Because it's exceptional in the animal world. And as ornithologist Alexander Scutch says, it's precisely this rarity that makes it so instructive. It's evidence of a bird solving a problem or finding a better way to perform a habitual activity. And that is rare in the animal world, that an animal will problem solve or find a better way to do something that it does all the time. I mean, if you look at a lot of animals that they they do the same thing all the time, they're just going to continue doing it the same way. But there's this rare sort of echelon of animals that will continue to evolve throughout their lives and problem solve things and find other objects in their environment to put together into a new kind of use. And it doesn't seem that unusual because we do it all the time, but it does sort of signal that there's something different about this particular animal. And I don't, I'm not saying that necessarily makes it more worthy of any special consideration on our part. Like we don't, we shouldn't treat the crow better than we treat the blue jay, but maybe that alters how we see all birds. And if, how we see all birds gets altered, then maybe that changes how we treat their environment and how we treat the earth. It's a big stretch, I know, but if, if you do enough of that education about enough different animals and enough people listen, then maybe it makes a difference. I was doing some research earlier today about the Endangered Species Act and similar to what you were saying where the main criticism of it is that it focuses on a specific species and not the ecosystems in which it's contained. But inevitably, if you help the specific species, it will also help the ecosystem too. So even though maybe the motivation isn't there, it does eventually have the same outcome. It's all well and good for things in the living and natural world, but she never touches on any intelligence of these farmed birds or domesticated birds that may be exploited constantly. And that's Another thing I research is chickens are just as smart as most of these birds. They think, they feel, they dream, they have friends, they nurture their kids, they get sad. It's, it's pretty depressing to read about all the things that chickens go through, and yet we do this to chickens because we normalize and habituate the exploitation of these non-human animals, but these more exotic ones get all the glory and all the research and all the books written about them, all the documentaries, all the photo ops and things like that. So while I... Maybe some people start linking these birds to more exploited birds. I don't know. Has anyone ever heard about somebody learning about crows or ravens or 
um, ostriches or penguins or lyrebirds or cowbirds or anything and it's having that start a journey towards a vegan lifestyle no no but again that's that's not a goal of this particular book so i don't fault this book for not doing that because it doesn't set out to do that i mean every book in the world can't as much as me we might want joe but every book in the world doesn't have the op the object of becoming a vegan conduit you know Gosh darn, this is a vegan <laughs> podcast. I'm yeah. going to bring it to every conversation. <laughs> no, well, we should talk about veganism in light of this, but it's not the book's fault. Right. You know, the, the world according to Garp is not uh, a, a vegan argument. It's I'm an English book. major. I can make any book about anything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. In my frame of mind, it perpetuates the idea that these animals that aren't exploited on nearly the scale of things like chickens are worth more and have value to them of billions of billions of dollars being put towards helping them recover from being endangered, saving their environments and stuff like that. Whereas you could save countless chickens just by not eating them. That's very true. So if you're out there and you're a backyard bird lover and this sort of stuff interests you, why don't you consider maybe not eating chickens? Yeah, and chickens are birds, too. The same class. class. (laughs) (laughs) Joe and I have been doing research into how animals are classified, and it's hard to keep in your mind how it goes. It's pretty wild, the variety that exists amongst the bird species. I think the intro is probably one of the best parts of this book. She basically talks about the incredible diversity that exists amongst um, avian species and all these different angle examples. And she does touch on something that I had as criticism, but she says that these anecdotal examples are still valid because they show the variety that exists within this class of animals. Yeah. You got any specific uh, exa- more examples from the book you'd like to bring up, Joe? Uh, let's see. We already talked about the crazy sheep. Well, uh, going back to the vegan thing, with the research, some of this research they do is downright cruel to these yeah. poor yeah, animals. Yeah, that's true. They had this experiment where they want to weigh these birds' babies to see how they do growing up. And they basically take them and stuff them in a test tube upside down and stick them on a scale just to get the weight. And as I was reading, I go, who cares? Yeah, well, and then there's like examples of like they want to see what happens if a bird doesn't learn something growing up. So they're like, well, they, they kept 10 of the baby birds from being able to engage in play during their childhood to see if it learned how to if it knew how to play innately or if it was a learned behavior, which is an interesting thing to know, but it really sucks for those 10 birds. And how do you, how, they never said how they would do such a thing, but how do you prevent 10 birds from learning how to play during their childhood? That's probably not a pretty thing. And even back to the anthropomorphizing thing, by us calling it play, that automatically makes it seem less important and something that's not quite as awful to take away, but to them it could be, not sending a kid to school for their whole childhood and then saying, oh, well, let's see if this kid can get a job now. Well, no. Well, that was an interesting thing, though. They did go into a lot about how um, a lot of bird species play. And I I guess it seems as though play in the the wild is somewhat of a a special thing that only certain animals do. Uh, And I think it seems like most scientists have assumed that it's just mammals for the most part that engage in play. 
but it looks like birds, like well over 50% of bird species actually engage in play. Like even like adults will play with each other. And the definition of that would be like something that they're doing for literally no reason. Like it's not to learn. It's not, you know, a lot of people assume that, that animals play to, to sort of learn, but uh, it looks like for the most part, that's not true. They're just literally having fun. And I think she references a few times that the whole Darwinian view of wildlife that mainstream society adopts is that if animals do something, it has to be so they can procreate and that's it. So if they're doing something and you think it's pointless, there's a point there somewhere. And she does kind of touch on that for a lot of these with the play, like you said, being a learning opportunity. And she even talks about birds laughing and being optimistic, which I had to circle and say it was very silly. <laughs> yeah, again, definitely putting human values on uh, things animals are doing. I mean, we, now, we can observe them and, and make scientific notes and uh, guess at what they're doing and why they're doing it, but we can never really know for sure exactly what's happening in their brains. Yeah, I'm going to contradict myself a bit, and one of the complaints I had was that, I said earlier, was that it's a lot of anecdotal evidence that you can't, she just pulls things out of really extraordinary stories and states it out there and then seems to apply it to the entire class or species or family. And then, but then at the same time, I don't want her to go out and do a lot more research because as I was just saying, that's pretty terrible. So why can't we just leave them alone and not have to do anything? Right. Well, I mean, you can, you can do close observation of them in the wild, which is something that does happen, but I guess, uh, You'll get some researchers doing that, and they'll say, oh, we almost understand what they're doing, uh, but the only way to fully understand it is to capture them and put them in captivity and design these tests. I mean, it sounds like most of them are not uh, horrible, but you're still taking them out of their natural environment and altering their lives, which, of course, is, you know, we think that's our right as humans. But then back to my point, even if you do figure out that, let's say whatever experiment you run proves one thing or the other. Well, what difference does it? I guess you could say it for a lot of scientific articles, but what difference does it make? Well, I, I think, like, say you take magpies, and you you want to know about magpies and whether or not they can uh, put together this complex tool. And you design this huge experiment to figure it out. The, the end result is not that we know more about magpies, but that we understand another piece of the natural world and that we we're putting this information about this type of bird into the greater knowledge of birds and the birds knowledge is in the greater knowledge of the animal kingdom and as human beings we just have this innate desire to understand more of the world around us and the more we understand it if we are kind stewards of the world the better we can interact with it and the more appropriate we can interact with it. So all these little pieces of knowledge add up to a greater understanding. That's just how I look at it, I guess. I always fall back on what's the alternative, and I suppose along those lines, if the alternative is nobody learning anything about any animals and just purely viewing them as tools or commodities in their lives, I guess I'd rather have them think of exotic birds as worth saving or intelligent or emotional creatures rather than not thinking anything about any birds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think more knowledge is better as long as we can gain that knowledge in, in ethical and sensible ways. So we've talked a lot about birds in the wild, and we mentioned a few times, she doesn't really touch on domesticated birds or anything. Though, John, you mentioned you lived with a bird <laughs> 
for years. Yeah, my cousin had a Monte Conure, and it's basically a little parrot. But um, <laughs> he, my cousin moved out, and basically we were stuck with this bird for a really long time. And you could tell he was not happy. I mean, he he was miserable all the time. Like we tried to get him out, and he would just bite us and. He just, he was not in a good place and I felt bad for him. Like it was terrible. Uh, however, his name was Sebastian, but I called him Sebastard because <laughs> he would start screaming at like five o'clock in the morning, like every day. And it's like, oh my God, this is horrible. But I mean, he was very smart. Like he, he, he would know people and there were certain things that if something, if somebody did something or was like wearing a certain thing, he didn't like it and he let you know. But yeah, he was very smart, and we ended up giving him to a sanctuary, so at least he's probably happy now. <laughs> but it, it's sad, because, you know, they clip their wings and stuff like that, so they can't even, like, fly away. I was going to ask if he ever got to fly. Uh, he When we did let him out the one time, he, like, flapped around and, like, just kind of fell over. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, that's awful. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know why anyone ever thought birds would be a good pet. yeah i agree i i guess maybe because they you know a lot of them talk and and he actually did say a couple birds like he would say uh good night when it was actually like bedtime so that was kind of cool and like you can i mean it sounded like good night i mean and he said hello sometimes but yeah that was pretty much it but i mean there's some birds out there that make incredible sounds and like I, that that just blows me away how they're able to do that I'm going to try and pull audio of a liar bird into this episode so I can show the listeners the insanity that is that bird's vocal capabilities. Yeah, well, why don't you explain it a little bit? So the liar bird is essentially a bird that mimics whatever noises it hears. So if it hears us talking, it will start making noises that sound like human speech. If it's around a construction site, it will start mimicking drills and bulldozers and the beep, beep of trucks backing up and stuff. <laughs> If it's around car alarms, it'll start making car alarm sounds. If it hears other birds, it'll mimic their sounds to get them to either run away or come over or things like that. It's it's madness. I don't know. I didn't know about bird mimicry very much before this book, but so a lot of people might not know that that birds simply mimicking other birds is a very common thing. They and they do it to. It's usually not very uh, honorable. They'll do it to to trick them to steal their food or to go and eat their their eggs or to to put their own babies into that bird's nest. What do they call that, Joe? Uh, well, I had those... Brood cow- parasitism. Yes, I had cowbirds. I have them. Those are the big ones that do that. Aha, yes. Yes, brood parasitism, where you lay your own egg in another bird's nest and force that bird 
to raise your young. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> but it's weird because it's not, they don't even try that hard to hide it. They put it in there <laughs> right? and yeah. the other bird just goes, ah, they just roll with it. Yeah. They're like, I, be, I guess this is my bird. It's how, really how do they do that? I mean, because eggs are not an easy thing for like a, right. Because they have talons. So how do they, that has to be like really hard for them to do that. Well, well I think they go in the nest and lay them while the other bird Oh, so is they're away. actually just, yeah. <laughs> Right. Wow, that's yeah. Well, and that's why, like, they'll they might mimic another bird. Okay. They might mimic that bird to get that bird to fly away. Wow! And then go in while the bird is gone. That's wild. And but and there was this long chapter, very interesting chapter about, and I can't remember the types of birds here, Joe. If you do, help me out. But the, this one bird has evolved to lay eggs that are sort of like identical to the bird that oh, it wow. wants to brood. But then the the host bird has evolved in, in, in concert with that to develop kind of like its own individualized signature egg so that sort of, sort of like a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. So its, its eggs have you know five blue spots on them, but just that individual bird, not the, not the species. Right. And so the brood parasite has evolved the, its eggs to look like the species' eggs. So the host can tell that that's not its egg, but then this is kind of like creates this evolution arms race where the brood parasite bird is starting to evolve the ability to mimic individualized eggs while the host species is evolving the ability to create individualized eggs that change with every single clutch. So it's sort of like the brood parasitism is um, sp- spurning this hot, uh, like very rapid evolutionary race and even sometimes where the birds do lose their own babies and are raising these other birds chicks they don't care they keep doing it and even cowbirds i wrote in my notes are sleeper agents because they will be raised as these other birds thinking let's say a cowbird goes and does this to a robin and they get rid of the robin's babies and they put their babies in the nest and they live their whole lives thinking they're robins. And then the mama cowbird comes over and says a special song and then something switches in their brain. All of a sudden, oh, we're cowbirds. Peace out. And then they leave. Yeah, really weird because wow. this animal has woke up to life in this nest with these other birds. Right. And somehow still knows the song that'll turn like turn that switch on. That's really intriguing stuff absolutely wow that's there's really cool information about birds in here don't get us wrong it's <laughs> if you're really into birds and just want to read someone gush over them for 300 pages <laughs> go get this book you'll have a great time you know something that really stuck in my mind was um, birds use of fire as a tool hmm. if say that there's a wildfire <clears throat> a bird and the, I mean, it's certainly not any bird, but a couple of species of birds have learned to sort of pick up some, some burning material in its beak and take this to closer to where they know there's animals in the brush and or animals that they want to eat. And they'll drop the fire and wait for it to start burning and, and chase the animals out. And then they'll just swoop down and eat the animals. That is crazy. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, that, that was incredibly interesting, I thought. Yeah, I I remember that too. That was and they were saying how the firefighters would be fighting these fires, and all of a sudden they turn around and be another fire right behind them. <laughs> <laughs> and I know Seth, you've done a little bit of research onto backyard bird feeders and how those affect wild birds and humans' roles and just wildlife management in general. Yeah. So um, 
you know, I want to preface this by saying I it, this is just a debate that is occurring in the wider world. I, I have no opinion one way or the other about whether you, know, you should feed birds at your house. It's it's just something I know about. I think a lot of people, most people, almost everybody, probably thinks that backyard bird feeding is a pretty harmless thing that you do that helps the birds and you just get to watch them and interact with wildlife. But, you know, it's always kind of occurred to me that you're sort of self-selecting which species of birds you're helping. That probably can't be natural. And when things aren't natural, then there's probably some, some ill effects to that. So I was looking into it. Um, so there's a couple negative effects here. First of all, like humans only like to really look at a narrow range of bird species. So we feed specifically those birds. So we're helping out, you know, blue jays, cardinals, goldfinches, hummingbirds, that sort of thing. Uh, while other birds that live in the exact same uh, environment as them aren't getting that help from us. But are we really helping the birds we're feeding. When we when we put out feeders for those birds, uh, it sort of deadens their natural ability to hunt and find their own food, uh, and they become dependent on us. And then their young don't go through the natural process of learning where you find the seeds, how do you catch the insects, because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, if there's a fallow period where uh, say a neighborhood for some reason has a lot less feeders than usual or there's um, less less natural food in their environment than there usually is, then a lot of members of that species just aren't as good at finding the food anymore. Then there's some other even larger kind of issues at hand here. Um, a lot of the food that we feed these birds is very specific seeds. So um, like uh, black sunflower seeds are a big one. And hundreds of millions of pounds of this are grown every year for the express purpose of feeding birds, which takes up land, takes up water that could be used for other crops. But also one thing I read, especially with this crop, the black sunflower seeds, is that birds love these things. So what do you think is going on in the fields? So birds are attracted to these fields and farmers to protect their cash crop, are killing the birds. The birds, wow. the, you know, because they don't care about the birds. They're, they they wanna, want the money. They want the money. And in fact, they've actually asked the government for grants to help poison the birds that are flying to these fields, eating the sunflowers that are being grown mm. to feed the birds. <laughs> that's insane. My head hurts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just yeah. so stupid. Yeah. And then there's other smaller issues. I don't know about, I don't want to say smaller, but what we're we're entrusting these people that are doing backyard bird feeding with a sort of a kind of wildlife management and bird feeders get real nasty i mean they get dirty real quick because you've got hundreds it's probably hundreds of different members of different species of birds feeding from this same feeder and if you're not cleaning that feeder probably about every two weeks or so you're getting a ton of bacteria on that Mm -hmm. thing and it spreads avian diseases and bacterial infections really easily. And I guarantee you, nine out of 10 people are not cleaning their feeders properly. So you you can't, what you're doing is you're allowing any Joe off the street to go into a Walmart, spend $10. Yeah, you're a Joe off the street. I see this. (laughs) (laughs) To spend $10 on a feeder and become a wildlife feeder. 
you know, however he sees fit, he or she sees fit. And there's a lot that you need to take into account, not only with making sure things are clean and sanitary, but what are the other wildlife in your area that are going to be attracted to this feeder? What kind of conflict is that going to cause? Are you possibly drawing house cats or other wildlife to the same area where you're bringing birds? And does that actually put the birds or the other wildlife in danger? You're creating an oasis of food in your backyard that would not naturally be there. And that's kind of a big thing. Yeah, I think with this, it's easy to discount and say, well, you could say that about anything. You could use your sneaker company to the resources that go into your clothes to help animals, or that's a waste of resources and stuff like that, or that hurts animals too. But this is something people are explicitly doing to help the birds, that is harming them across all these different channels. And But it's so normalized in society too. Uh, if you feed cats, people look at you as kind of weird, or people gripe, or it's, it's not something everyone does. There's no cat feeders for outdoor cats. and Well, I'm sure there are, but it's not. <laughs> you don't go and walk down the street or go into someone's house and see these outdoor extravagant like mouse-shaped cat feeders outside like we do with <laughs> flower-shaped bird feeders. And But with bird feeders, everyone thinks it's okay and there's no really debate over it aside from these kind of um, silo debates that occur on the margins a lot. But everyone else just thinks this is okay thing, but it's really not from what you just were saying. Well, imagine imagine if your next-door neighbor, instead of feeding birds, um, was feeding possums. You know, what, what would your neighbors think about that? I mean, would that, would that seem strange that you've decided to feed some wild animals at your house? It might seem strange. And we, as humans, like you said, have just taken upon ourselves to select what animals are okay, what ones aren't. And this is something that comes into on the other side of the spectrum, too, with invasive species. I... No, there's certain invasive species out there. Some people say it's like bugs or coyotes or things like that, but I don't know all the specifics behind it. I'm not about to go out there and do a straw poll of all the different woodland creatures to see what do you really <laughs> think about spotted lanternflies. <laughs> so, and I find it a little hesitant to just buy into the idea that we need to kill a lot of these animals, whether it's birds eating your sunflower seed crops or coyotes overpopulating or even spotted lanternflies doing their thing. I don't know as a person if it's my responsibility to go out there and dictate what animal gets loved and survives and cherished by society which ones are pests that need to be exterminated yeah it's it's a definitely a nuanced debate because i mean there's a lot of other scientists or wildlife experts that say you know what it's actually not a very big problem and the benefit that some of these birds are getting from your feeding is it outweighs the negatives that I've just outlined. So I, I'm certainly not coming out firmly against backyard bird feeding. I don't know enough to have a, a firm opinion on it, but I think people should know it is a debatable topic. I would definitely not make it the hill I die on. Yes, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we should, we should uh, just briefly at least mention, uh, don't buy a bird at a pet store. Yes, or just don't have a bird in your house at all yes. if you can help it. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know I, why you wouldn't be able I can, to. I can vouch for that. Don't get a bird. I know we had talked about rescuing fish from pet stores and that it was, I think that we decided it was more about what your heart felt, but I don't, I don't know that I can say that's true with birds. Yeah, because, I mean, the whole process of them, I, I think it's standard for them to clip the wings. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So it's just like, that's not, that's not fair to them. No. And there's only so much you can do for a bird, too. A bird's life in a pet store, while 
probably worse than the one at your home. I still you can't have a very l- ex- most people cannot have really large extravagant bird cages. Right, and, th- yeah. and the other thing too is a lot of those birds live <laughs> a very long time. I mean, the bird I had can live up to like sixty years, so wow. it's, that's a long time to suffer. Honestly, yeah. right. So yeah, I mean, did, did they talk about that in the book about no. like how like lifespans and stuff? Oh, lifespans. Well, it's just so incredibly varied. Yeah, there's so many different yeah. types of birds. With you know, some will live one year and some will live right. like seventy. Okay. And there's all sorts of little cool facts, toys, and stories we could pull out of here. But I think we touched a lot of the major ones. Any other things to pull out, Seth? Uh, you know, I'm sure afterwards I'll probably think of something that I wanted to mention. Let me just look real quick here. Oh, you know what? Uh, Bowers. You, you remember you know, Bowers, the, the little bird houses? It's a thing they build. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just seemed so incredibly interesting to me. And you have to look up images of this. B-O-W-E-R, and then type in, like, bird, So because there's other things that word means, but and then do a Google image search. There are these little, I don't know, houses that they build on the ground. Do they kind of they kind of look like a hut? So yes, it's like yeah, a I've hut. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and then, you know, they decorate them. Let me see mm-hmm. if I can find this, yeah. <laughs> uh, this quote here. And they were trying to figure out what the point was of them decorating, and they had all these weird theories, but, again, it was us just trying to make sense with our human brains this non-human very illogical thing yeah yeah and so some there's these some kinds of birds that use them for um a mating ritual like Mm. the 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 male builds it and decorates it and then the female visits it and decides if she wants to have kids (laughs) with this guy (laughs) whether the house yeah and um so male spotted bowerbirds strategically place decorations of different colors and sizes to construct a series of successive scenes for the female to see as she approaches and enters the bower. In the dim shade beneath trees or shrubs, where a male usually builds his bower, it helps to have a beacon to catch a female's eye and alert her to its presence. So on the perimeter of his bower, the bird places big visible decorations like bones that act as long-distance signals to draw the females in. Inside his little landscaped garden, he creates a neat, narrow lane, clear of big decorations, sometimes carpeted with flat stones or sticks, where he will do his song and dance display. Next to the path, he may stack bones into piles, forming a white backdrop for his bright pink crest. Can we just have you read the whole book? <laughs> I can. I can do it. But isn't that, that's just yeah, a that's, bird. That's, yeah, you know? that's incredible. People wow. think this the bird, you know, they make a nest. You know, but this, right. this guy is creating a series <laughs> of successive decorative scenes. And, and that's, it, that's amazing too, but I, I love how like some of them will do like dance rituals and stuff oh, like that. Oh, yeah. And that's so cool to see. Yeah, that's incredible stuff. Yeah. yeah. They talk about, they even do... Uh, they have wingmen, some of these birds. Mm-hmm. They'll do uh, two birds will <laughs> dance and then only one bird will get to score and right. they'll have the bird that will basically just allow the other bird to flip on his back and be there so the other bird looks good and <laughs> then the other bird gets to you know, do his thing and then eventually the one wingman upgrades to the primary partner and then he is do his thing. It's wild. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, it, yeah, like Joe said, it doesn't touch on why we should really conserve them or or give a call to action but if you can cut through all the noise of the the stories of the researchers there's some really compelling information any final thoughts on the book anyone 
I didn't read it, so I have nothing. <laughs> Birds in general, John? I, I mean, they're amazing animals. I think they deserve the same rights as any other animal to, you know, be on this planet. Yeah, they're just, they're very smart and they do really cool things. That's pretty much I, all I got. I think the similarity between birds and fishes is that they they don't fit what humans like in animals with the furry faces with eyeballs and noses, um, such as dogs and cats and you know leopards and bears and you know, things that we find cute. So, I mean, birds can be cute if you really stop and look at them and think about them, and they're not scaly like fish, mm-hmm. so they might be a little easier for some people to identify with. But the beaks and the feathers still prevents a lot of people from having warm and fuzzies about them, even though there's an extraordinary thing happening outside where hundreds of animals are flying around. That, to me, is insane. It never stops being insane. Animals (laughs) flying. The whole sky. Some world we have no idea anything about as humans. Yeah. And that's their world. It's amazing. So before we go, what's everybody's favorite bird? Oh. (laughs) Well, this is kind of a... Maybe a cop out, but I think it's got to be the hummingbird. They're amazing. They really are. Yeah, absolutely. I'd have to say the morning dove, just because I love the noise it makes. Hmm. Hmm. Very nice. I, I'm gonna be generic and just say penguins. <laughs> penguins are pretty cool. Yeah, they're they're pretty amazing. The things they do, I like them, and they make a really cool noise. I'm Although not, I'm not even gonna try to do it. <laughs> we can tell you uh, once the podcast is over, we'll tell you some of the the strange things penguins do that mm. are perhaps. Uh, not as cuddly as you may think. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hug a penguin, though. Yeah. Or tackle one. <laughs> oh, God. Well, they remind me of those football bags where you run oh, and yeah. tackle them. Right. That's not very vegan. <laughs> no, no. Did you hear Joe Kirkener wants to tackle a penguin? Front, front page of the paper tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> The York Vegan Times. Is that where it's going <laughs> to? Yeah. Ooh, there's an idea. Oh. All right. So, yeah, in conclusion, if you're really into birds and want to hear some really cool stories about them and don't really want to think too much about larger, deeper, complex issues or be burdened with the call to Burden. action. <laughs> <laughs> then this book's Did you just wing that? Oh! <laughs> I'm flying by the seat of my pants oh, over here. I can't believe it's still happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you like birds and just want to learn more about them, not think too much about deep, complex things and enjoy affirming how awesome they are, by all means, pick up this book. You'll have a great time. Though if you are like me and a huge skeptic and always are looking for the next level of things, you might be a little bored or frustrated by some of the messaging in it. Don't be afraid to skim. Yes, skimming is your friend in this book. If you are reading a part and you get bored and you skip four pages over and they're still talking about the same bird doing the same thing. That was basically all there was. You didn't miss much. So <laughs> in any case, thanks everyone for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or want to tell, share your thoughts about the book, email us at bekindpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the Be Kind Podcast with your host, Joe Kirkner. Presented by the Animal Advocates of South Central Pennsylvania.